Good morning. Good morning. It is great to be together. I just want to echo uh, the greeting that you've already gotten from Luke, from Elizabeth. My name is Rob. I'm happy to see you. If you're a guest, we hope you've already been greeted as you came in the door. Uh, for all of you, I say this every time I come up. I'm going to keep saying it. I'd love to get to know you. If you haven't met me yet, if I haven't had a chance to shake your hand and you're willing to come down, I know it's a little scary to come down, but I figured after last week, everybody came up on the stage, right? Some of you were thinking, I thought I'd never stand on that stage. And there you were around the table. Uh, we're not going to do that again this week, but I would certainly love to meet you at the end of the service. This Thursday marks a very important day for the history of Fellowship Bible Church. March 8th, 1998 was the very first public worship service, Fellowship Bible Church. 20 years ago this Thursday. Do we have anybody in the room today that was at the very first public worship service at Fellowship? I see a hand. I see a couple of hands over there, a couple of hands over there. Fantastic. Been here 20 years. I know many more of you joined shortly after. We've got a photo of March 8th, 1998. I don't know if y'all folks are going to see yourselves in this photo or not. Let's put it up on the screen. I just want you to look at that for a minute. I want to ask you as you stare at that photo, we'll leave it up for a minute or two. What do you see? Besides Subway. <laughs> now, this was uh, Franklin High School. Looks like the cafeteria, right? I assume that's the only place they'd put that subway sign. What do you see? Yeah, some of you are thinking, that's not a great picture. It's not well composed. You know, it's everybody's backside. Yeah, that, that's not what I want you to look for. I want you to say, what can, what can you tell about that moment in time, that group of people? I stared at this photo this week for, I say a long time, five, ten minutes. I don't know how long it was. And I was asking myself that question, what do I see? And, and I saw the three things that I want to share, three words, actually, that I thought about. And I want to share those with you because I think they're significant. Number one, the first word that came to my mind was authentic. It's not real pretty, you know? You don't have like a beautiful stage. Uh, you don't have people all dressed up. I mean, they're, they're in a high school cafeteria with those, I'm sure, very comfortable orange plastic chairs, right? It's authentic, though. This is a group of people that said, no, 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 we're, we're not going to wait until we have a pretty worship space, until we have a big budget, until we have comfortable chairs. We, we're going to start. We're going to get together. We're going to start gathering, hearing God's word taught, and worshiping God together. You can just tell. Just look at them. The way they're dressed, the way they're talking to each other. It's authentic. It's real. That's number one, authentic. Number two, the word fellowship. Now, that may sound like cheating because that's the name of the church, but I see that. I see community. I see men and women talking to each other. In fact, there's only like, the only two guys that aren't engaged in something are those two guys up front, right? <laughs> Lloyd and Jeff, like I don't know why they're just hanging out, but they're just hanging out. Now maybe it was about to start, maybe it was at the end. I don't know, but look at all the people, look at all the conversations. Look at everybody talking to each other. They're either talking to each other or they're moving places. This is community, this is fellowship. That's the second thing that I saw. And the third thing that I saw, this word might surprise some of you, the word fragile. It's not very big. It's not very impressive. It's fragile. Now, what do I mean by that? All startups are fragile. It's the first public gathering. If the economy were to go south the next week or something were to happen to the, the, 
the, the main you know, guys, or the, the leadership, something in the community, that thing could be squashed like that. From a human perspective, it's fragile. Now, the beautiful thing about being fragile is it forces you to be dependent upon God. So Paul talks about when you're weak, then you're strong because you're depending upon the true strength. I have to imagine, those of you that were there, you know this. This is a group of people that said, if something's going to happen with Fellowship Bible Church, it's going to be God. Because we're small. We're fragile. We're authentic. We're vulnerable. We're messy. And we want to be a community together. I thought about those three words, authentic, fellowship, fragile. I thought, may we still be those three things for the next 20 years. May we lead that way. May we grow that way. A place that people can just be real. They can come in the doors without having to put on airs. That they can hear the word God, the word of God taught in a way that brings God's word into real life. Men and women who know each other in community. Now I know as this church has grown, it's been harder to have that. By the way, that's why we're doing the meet and greet every single week, even though, as Lloyd said, it is awkward for those of you that are new. We want to spur relationships. That's why we're re-energizing our focus on small groups. We're calling them fellowship groups. We're going to keep pushing that, especially in the fall. We want to bring back this as a place that's easy to get to know people, and we've got some work to do there. And then finally, fragile. Here we are now with a multi-million dollar budget, a beautiful building here, another campus down at, at Franklin, a new campus up at Nashville. Are we still fragile? I hope so. From a human perspective, I hope we're still just as dependent upon God as this group of men and women were 20 years ago. That's my prayer for us. So let's pray as we mark this moment. And by the way, this won't be the only time we'll talk about the 20th anniversary. This whole year, we'll keep coming back to it. This is the 20th year of God's work through Fellowship Bible Church. But let's pray right now as we mark this coming day, March 8th, 20-year anniversary. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you for the faith of the men and women in this photo. You spoke to them and they answered. And now here we are 20 years later enjoying uh, a beautiful room, a comfortable place on a gorgeous day. And we're looking back 20 years and imagining what would that have been like? I thank you for those men and women that were in that moment, in that morning. Some of them maybe in the photo even. And here they are this morning, 20 years later, sitting in this room. I, Thank you for their faithfulness, for many, many others who came to fellowship shortly after those days at, at Franklin High School or maybe uh, shortly after this campus was established. We have so many people that have committed years, you know, over a decade, many, to this congregation. I thank you for their faithfulness. But God, more than that, I thank you for your faithfulness. And as we commemorate just this small way this week and, and more still to come, as we commemorate this anniversary, we thank you for your provision Thank you that a fragile group of people that just wanted to study God's word and worship and, and, and make a difference, I thank you that you chose to preserve them, that you formed this church. And here we are now, God, staring into the future, looking ahead, and I pray that those same three words would mark us. That we'd be authentic. That we would know one another and be known by one another and we would be deeply dependent upon you for our strength. Only reason that this church exists is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name and his name alone that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Now open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. 
we're skipping ahead a few chapters, and I'm going to catch you up in a few minutes, and I'll tell you even why we're skipping ahead a few chapters, but we're going to be in Acts chapter 15 this morning. Now, let me just say this up front. There is an awful lot of text to cover. Some of it's fairly technical. Uh, some of you, especially those of you that aren't wired to like history, you, your instinct may be, what am I going to get out of a sermon on 35 verses on the Jerusalem Council. Let me just say this. This was one of the most important moments in the history of the church. And the principle that they were debating and that they ultimately decided on is still to this day the most important thing in the Christian church. No exaggeration. And there's an awful lot of application for us. So we're going to get to the application. It's not going to all be you know, historical study, but that's there. And I want to own it. In fact, I want to bring it to life for you so you can see how critical and how amazing and significant and actually beautiful this moment in church history actually was. I want to begin with an analogy. Uh, 1999, a movie came out called The Sixth Sense. Curious, how many of you watched The Sixth Sense? Okay, maybe a little more than half of you. Okay, if you watch The Sixth Sense, you'll remember two things about this movie. Number one, the most famous line, I see dead people. Now, some of you even now are like, oh, that movie. Yeah, I've seen that movie. Okay, I, this is the I see dead people, you know, little cute kid, and he says that. The other thing you'll remember about that movie is the huge plot twist that happens at the very end. Now, even if you haven't seen that movie, you can identify because we've all watched movies with a big plot twist at the end. I mean, I'm talking about one of those 180 degrees where it's like, oh, my word. You mean to tell me that Bruce Willis all along, don't say it, all right, some of you haven't watched it, although you have had 20 years, you know. <laughs> All right, but I'm, I'm not going to reveal what it is because it's actually worth watching. In fact, if you watch it with this sermon in mind, I think you might be able to appreciate this illustration even more. So suffice it to say, you watch this movie for an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes, you get to the very last scene and there's this big reveal that causes you to be like, oh my goodness, I want to go back and rewatch it now in light of what I now know is actually true. What's happening in that moment is there's a deconstruction of what you thought you knew and a reconstruction of what you now know. And everything begins to make sense. Why that analogy? That's what Christianity is. Through all of history, of, of, of Jewish history, non-Jewish history, the history of the world, Mankind thought one thing. Here's how you get to God, you know? Or, or, you know, their understanding of God or understanding of what it means to be acceptable to God in particular was all going down this one path. Jesus came and he changed the game. He started teaching about this kingdom. He started teaching about grace. He started introducing these concepts and it was like, this is new. You mean to tell me all of my life I thought this and now Jesus, you're telling me this by the way, that's not only true of what Jesus did in human history, that's also true every time someone's converted. This is what conversion feels like. It feels like that plot twist in the sixth sense. You're going down your life and you're like, I think this is what it means to have an identity. I think this is what it means for me to uh, be acceptable to God. I think this is what it means for me to be a good person. This is what it means for me to relate to other people. And then the gospel comes into your life and it transforms you in such a way that everything you thought you knew was deconstructed and now there's something new. 
You are a new creation, Paul talks about. There's a reconstruction. And so like any construction project, you have deconstruction, you've got reconstruction. It's always messy and it's never without controversy. And we're going to see that in our text this morning. This is a text about controversy, but it is so critical that you understand the root issue and how it relates to you and me. That's the setup. Now let's dig in. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. A little bit of background before we get into that verse. What's happened between Acts 11, which is where Lloyd had you last week, and Acts 15? Well, first of all, let's recap Acts 11. Peter has this vision of these unclean animals coming down on a sheet. And God says, eat. And Peter says, no way. I'm a good kosher Jewish boy. I ain't eating that stuff. And God says, eat. Finally, Peter gets the idea. There's something new happening. That image, right, that was communicating to Peter and through Peter the rest of the church that nothing is unclean anymore, that God purifies, that God is made clean. And so Cornelius comes in, a Gentile, unclean Gentile, receives Christ, receives the Spirit, he's made clean. What do you know? The gospel is for non-Jews as well as Jews. Sixth sense moment. Fast forward 10 years. Our text this morning happens 10 years later. So you're about A.D. 50 at this point. Let me tell you a few things that have happened in that ensuing 10 years. First of all, the church sent Barnabas and Paul to a city called Antioch. Now, the gospel spreading outward. Remember Acts 1.8 started in Jerusalem. Then it goes to Judea and Samaria, starting to get to the utter reaches of the earth. But, you know, Antioch's just barely outside. You know, it's kind of to the north. So you're still kind of in the vicinity. In Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are preaching the gospel. Both Jews and Gentiles are coming to faith. Two things happen. Number one, you have the first multi-ethnic church. Jews and Gentiles fellowshipping together. Now, that created some problems. That created some problems at the table, Right? Because there's all these cleanliness rituals if you're a good Jew and you've been raised that way. You see, up until this moment, the Jewish Christians had assumed that Christianity, they wouldn't have called it that, but it was actually a reformation of Judaism. Outsiders would have seen it as a sect of Judaism. Pharisees would have seen it as a cult of Judaism. What's actually happening is something new, you see. And so in Antioch, you have this first multi-ethnic congregation. There's some things that are going on here as these folks are learning to eat together and worship together, etc. The second thing that happens in Antioch is this is the first place where the followers of Jesus are called Christians. The word Christian literally means little Christ. It was originally intended to be derogatory. But how beautiful is that? I want, I want to be a little Christ. I want us collectively to be little Christ, to be Christians. That's what that word means. Now, from Antioch, Paul and Barnabas are sent. In fact, the church at Antioch sends them on what we would later call the first missionary journey, Paul's first missionary journey. They're gone between one and two years. They cover about 500 miles on land, about 300 miles or so on sea. They're gone a long time. They preach the gospel all around the area. Gentiles are coming to faith. Jews are coming to faith, but mostly Gentiles. They come back to Antioch. They give a report at all that God has done. There's excitement. There's rejoicing. And now there's going to be controversy. Let's look at chapter 15, verse 1. 
some men came down from Judea. Remember, that's where Jerusalem is in Judea. And began teaching the brethren. Brethren just means brothers and sisters in the church. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Uh-oh. Jews and Gentiles worshiping together at Antioch. The Jewish Christians were circumcised. They were law followers. The Gentile Christians had not been circumcised. Some folks come from Jerusalem. They're not identified. They look at all the Gentile followers of Christ and say, you can't actually be saved unless you're also circumcised. There's a problem. There's a problem. Now, before we move on to verse 2, let me unpack this just a little bit more. It's been 10 years since Peter's vision and Cornelius' conversion. You'd think they would have had this stuff cleared up, right? Old thinking takes a long time to deconstruct. Point two, when they talk about circumcision, they're not just talking about literal, physical circumcision. Circumcision was identifying someone as a member of the covenant. And so not only were you circumcised if you were a male, but you were also required to follow the Mosaic law because you're part of the covenant. And so circumcision marks you as a member of the covenant and the laws keep you identifiable in part of the covenant. So not only were these Gentile Christians not circumcised, but they weren't following the cleanliness rituals. They weren't doing the things that good Jewish people did. What these men from Judea were essentially saying is, it's fine that you're in now because of Jesus, but if you want to be in, you got to be a Jew. You got to be a Jewish Christian, not just a Christian. You got to be a Jewish little Jesus. Because by the way, Jesus was Jewish too. You almost have some empathy. You know, if you're going to be a little Jesus, he was circumcised, he followed the law. Okay, so all this is going on and you almost have some understanding. It's like, I can see where this would be complicated. I can see where this would be confusing. Now, in some ways, these men that came from Judea had not yet had their sixth sense moment. They thought they knew the gospel, but they're adding stuff to it. And if you add stuff to the gospel, you don't actually understand the gospel. That, that, that's a tease. We're going to come back to that. Let's look at verse 2. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So Jerusalem still kind of thought of as the, the, the home base, or the capital of the Christian movement, if you want to think of it that way. Verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And check out this next part. We're bringing great joy to all the brethren. Now, remember, joy is a major theme in Acts. We don't think of that. We think of Philippians as the joy book, but there's joy all throughout Acts. Joy follows the gospel in Acts. Wherever the gospel goes, joy accompanies it. And so here, as these people are hearing about what's happening with these Gentile followers, they get it. Like, they're like, praise God, let's rejoice. There's joy that is spreading. Verse 4. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to, the, to observe the law of Moses. 
Now here you see they're making explicit what the first group back in Antioch had made implicit, not only circumcision, but law as well, because the two go together. All right, and by the way, there were only 613 commands in the Mosaic law. <laughs> Good luck. Now, we learn in this verse the particular people that were challenging this the most were former Pharisees. You know who Pharisees are. You've heard that name a lot. Jesus butted heads with them all the time. Why did he butt heads with them? They were so legalistic. They didn't get Jesus at all. Like grace has no place in a Pharisee's heart. Except for Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus was the exception. But by and large, Jesus was always arguing with the Pharisees. Isn't it beautiful that now some from the sect of the Pharisees have put their faith in Jesus? Redemption stories, men and women. And yet, deconstruction takes a long time time so they're struggling they're still struggling they're former pharisee how in the world could these uncircumcised gentiles unclean in their table manners how can they be a part of god's people didn't god give us circumcision for a reason didn't god give us law for the reason oh yes just not for the reason they thought now i'm getting ahead of myself all right let's keep going through this text verse six the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pause right there. The early days, he's talking about 10 years ago when he had the vision that you all studied last week with Lloyd. Verse 8. And God, I love this, who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. Pause right there. That's huge. Peter's saying the proof that God has made them clean is he gave them the same spirit he gave to us. Moving ahead. Verse 9. And he made no distinction between them and uh, us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. You know how many of those 613 laws have to do with cleanliness? Almost all of them. I couldn't figure out the number, but it's almost all of them. Here's what Peter's saying. God has cleansed their hearts. What God has made clean, why do we consider unclean? That's Peter's version from 10 years ago, but they're still working it out, you see. Now, at this point, some in the crowd might have been thinking, okay, if there's no distinction between them and us, well, let's just circumcise them already. And let's have them follow the laws. And, you know, this will be no problem, okay? They don't have to eat pork. You know, it's not good for you anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Peter's going to say, not so fast. The next two verses are really key. Start with verse 10. Now, therefore, this is still Peter talking. Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Boom. Boom. It's, it, here's what he's saying to these former Pharisees that are still struggling with legalism. He's saying, before you get all prideful about the, the Jewish relationship with the law that you, know, you're, you, you have so much pride in, don't forget that none of us have ever been able to keep it. Not the way God intended don't forget that, that our relationship to the law is, is not, not a sense of pride. In fact, it's only highlighted our 
need. It's highlighted our, ins- our insufficiency because we've not been able to keep it. Here's what Peter is saying to these former Pharisees, these legalistic Christians. You're viewing the law all wrong. It's not a point of pride. It's highlighted our insufficiency. And to put it on someone else is just putting on a yoke. Great metaphor. Great metaphor. You know, the yoke's what you put on the oxen. Heavy, and it allows the ox, oxen to pull. Here's another reason why it's a great metaphor. Taking the yoke was the phrase that was used at the time to describe a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew. Now, we're not talking about Christian church. We're talking about non-Christian Jews inviting in Gentiles into Judaism. They would say that person is taking on the yoke, becoming Jewish. Isn't that fascinating? One more metaphor I want to remind you of. Not in the text, from Lloyd's message a couple of weeks ago. The rope of religion. Now, some of you who weren't here, let me recap what Lloyd said. Lloyd said, this rope represents man's attempt to get to God. Remember back in gym class in middle school and high school. You know, you're coming into PE and, you know, I, I, for me, I'm like, man, I hope it's dodgeball day. And, and instead, it's climb the rope day. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness. Um, I laughed when I listened to Lloyd's message because uh, he, he referred to himself as a 78-pound weakling, you know. I don't know how much I weighed at that point, but it couldn't have been much more than that because I couldn't climb the rope, you know. All, like, the jocks are, like, shimmering right up there and, like, the, you know, the coaches are, like, you know, smiling and writing down notes. And I get up there. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even going to try, okay. I'm not going to embarrass myself again because I've already been embarrassed. But, you know, I, I'm like, you know, my, my feet are, like, this far off the ground. I'm like, am I there? <laughs> You know, and you just drop off and you, know, you drop two inches. Okay, now here's what Lloyd said. Religion at its core is man's attempt to get to God. Man's attempt to do whatever it takes to bridge the gap between God and man. Lloyd said, imagine that this rope didn't just go up to the rafter around there, but imagine it went all the way up to the moon and it was attached to the moon. Now, here's the deal. Some of you could climb this rope to the ceiling. Some of us could only get two inches off the ground, but nobody's getting to the moon. You see, that's the rope of religion. That's this analogy. Now, here's why I bring this analogy back. What Peter is calling out these Pharisees, former Pharisees that are now Christians, is he's saying, listen, is it the cross that makes you acceptable? Is it grace or is it rope climbing? Because by combining the two, what you're trying to do is hold on to the cross with one hand and climb the rope with the other. Can't do that. Two things will happen. Number one, you know, you got to have both hands to climb a rope. But more importantly, when you have one hand on the rope, you can't fully embrace the cross. You can't fully embrace grace, you see. So, so Peter's saying it's got to be one or the other. You can't try to climb the rope by holding the cross in the one hand. All right, now you get to verse 11. And, and this is where he really is going to spell it, out, spell it out explicitly. But we believe that we are saved through grace of the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's the cross, not the rope. In the same way as they also are. Here's Peter talking about the work of Jesus that changes everything. It's not the rope that saves you. It's the cross. In fact, it was never the point of the rope to save you. The point of the rope was to show you how desperately you need the cross. Because it goes all the way up and you can't go all the way up. That's the point of the law. Paul's going to talk about that very 
clearly in later epistles. It's not your work. It's Jesus' work. Now, we get to verse 12, and we're going to shift the focus from Peter to the next speakers at this council. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now, why is the focus on the signs and wonders? It's kind of like God giving the Spirit was his affirmation on these uncircumcised Gentiles that they're now clean. Signs and wonders is also affirmation from God. All right, there's miracles that are happening here. God is blessing this work, even though they're uncircumcised, you see. Verse 13, after they had stopped talking, James answered. Now, you know, here's the third person or the third group of people to stand up, James, saying, brethren, listen to me. Pause there. This is the brother of Jesus, James. We know he did not believe in Jesus as Messiah when he was alive, when Jesus was alive. Then he died and came back to life. And if you think your brother is crazy, but then he comes back to life, you might just change your mind. And this is what happened to James. So James is now full-on believer in Jesus. Think about how amazing that is. James grew up with Jesus, right? And he believes that he actually is Messiah. James is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Well, where's Peter? Peter's traveling around in different cities now, all right? And James is in Jerusalem, he's kind of the leader. Here's what James is going to say. Verse 14. Simeon, now it's just another name for Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. He's about to quote from Amos chapter 9. After these things I will return, God speaking, I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind, in other words, everyone non-Jewish may seek the Lord. This is what's happening in our day, James is saying. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, verse 18, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So James brings something important into the equation. He says, it's not just contemporary evidence that we have in our own experience from the last 10 years that God wants this. It's also in the scripture. What a great model, by the way. Always validate your experiences with God's word. That's what James is doing here. Now, based on this, James is about to make a recommendation to the council. And and this is going to be the winner. Okay, this is is what they're actually going to do. Let's look at verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Pause there. Like, that's the big reveal. It's like, no circumcision needed. No 613 laws needed. That's the big moment. Now, he's going to go on and say something interesting. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. From Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now, I know that just got confusing. All right, like you were tracking the first line and then it's like, but what? Now, what, what, what is James saying? Is he saying, Gentiles, uh, you don't have to climb the rope, but you do have to climb the rope, but only four inches. No, that's not actually what James is saying. What James is actually saying here, and you, wouldn't, you, you couldn't get this unless you were understanding the context of what's happening in this church at Antioch. Remember I told you that they're having trouble around the table? Remember like, you know, they're, 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 
it would be difficult even to have fellowship with people that grew up with such a different worldview or you're eating things that are unclean and they're eating things that are clean. What James is essentially doing here is he's laying out a principle that he's like, no circumcision necessary, but no unneeded offense either. Interesting, all four of the things that James you know, tells them to abstain from are related to pagan temple worship. So that's what was going on in Antioch and other cities is you had pagan temples and these people were coming in and, and, and there were temple prostitutes and, and they, would, they would kill animals in there and they wouldn't drain the blood, which was you know, the, the cleanliness that the, the Jews were accustomed to. So what James is saying is he's saying, listen, stay away from that stuff because that will cause needless offense. Because wherever, any place we're going with the gospel, Moses is also taught. In other words, there are unbelieving Jews that are there that are followers of Moses. You want, don't want them to be needlessly offended. Another way to think about this, the gospel is offensive. Let's not let anything else be. What do I mean by the gospel is offensive? To the Jew, Paul's going to talk about this. To the Jew, the gospel is offensive because it's saying, you're not good enough to get to God. Jesus had to die for you. That's offensive to someone that thinks they're like a rope climbing stud, okay? Now to the Gentile, the gospel is offensive as, as well because the Gentiles, just in different ways, are trying to climb their own rope. They're trying to make themselves acceptable to God in their own ways. We'll talk about that again in a minute. Here's an analogy. Imagine that, that we were gonna take the gospel out into an Amish community. And you know, before you went out, maybe we we're gonna plan a you know, fellowship down there's some, there's some place down south where there's an Amish community, I think. I haven't been there. Some of you have been there. And, and I were to say this, like before we launch this campus, I just want to say some, one thing to you. Don't go spraying mud with your F-150s on the buggies of the Amish men. That's just not nice, you see. That's a little bit of what's going on here. There are people that are followers of Moses that we want to come to the gospel. Let's not needlessly offend them. But... At the end of the day, no circumcision necessary. No law keeping necessary. The gospel is prevailing. Now, I'm going to read a big section of text for the sake of time. We'll make a couple comments as we go. Uh, and then I want to start to apply because this decision has been made and now it's going to go out. Verse 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brethren, and they sent them, or they sent this letter to them. Now you're about to actually read the letter. Pause for a minute. AD 50, we still have the letter. I think that's really cool. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch, in Syria, and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number, to whom we gave no instruction, have disturb, disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls. It seemed good to us, having become of one mind, boy, there's a lot packed in here, isn't there? To select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For, I love this next phrase, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, and to us. You see that tension there? Human decision led by the Holy Spirit. What a great model for us. To lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, 
Verse 29, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from these such things, you will do well. Farewell. Verse 30, so they were sent away. They went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There's the theme of joy once again. The gospel has come back. Rejoice. Now, the issue is settled. It's now time for reconstruction, right? Everything has to be reinterpreted in light of a new reality. The new reality is it's not the rope, it's the cross. What does that mean? You are no longer required to follow this law in order to earn your salvation. And yet there probably are some things that you should do not to needlessly defend, not to needlessly offend other people who haven't yet come to Christ. Salvation is here. Salvation is here. This is the decision of the church. I can't overemphasize how massive. If this decision had gone the other way, and God never would have let it, but had it, humanly speaking, gone the other way, Christianity would still be some sect of Judaism, right? That's what it would be. That's essentially what it would be. The gospel changes everything. You might even say it's a recognition that there's a new covenant emerging. You know, another word for covenant, testament. There's a new testament emerging. And by the way, literally being written. Pretty cool. Now, how do we apply this to us? What does this mean for us 2,000 years later? Um, here's where I want to go. Every single person in this room, and you know, some of you are like, this is a sensitive issue for me because I was raised in a church that tries to layer on works on top of the gospel. And by the way, the gospel plus anything does not equal salvation. Salvation is, is the gospel plus nothing. Others of you are thinking, okay, Rob, that's all fine and good, but isn't, you know, aren't we supposed to obey? Aren't we supposed to love our neighbor? Aren't we supposed to serve? Aren't we supposed to resist sin? You know, there's a lot of teaching in the New Testament about all that stuff as well. Absolutely. So there's a struggle in all of us to figure out how you navigate grace and works. James is all about that, right? The book of James is all about that. Grace and works, grace and works. There's a struggle in all of us. Here's the problem. If we're not careful, you come to realize you're actually centering your walk with Christ in religion more than gospel. Let me explain what I mean. The clearest way I know to do this is actually use some words that I went and read studying this week. They come from Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York City. And he put together this little chart with religion on one side and the gospel on the other. And where he's trying to get at, and I agree with him, is there's a little bit of religion in all of us, even those that are call ourselves Christians. Remember, what is religion? Man's attempt to be acceptable to God through our own effort. What is gospel? Christ made you acceptable not through your own effort. All right, let's take a look at this. Now, you've got religion on uh, your left, gospel on your right. There's gonna be four statements. They're gonna correspond to each other. Let's start with the first one over here on religion. If you tend to have a religious tendency, here's what you're thinking. I obey, therefore I'm made acceptable. In other words, it's my obedience, my lack of sin, my discipline, my quiet times, my tithing, my giving, my serving, my church attendance. That's what makes God okay with me if he is okay with me because you're never certain over here. Here's what the gospel says on the other side. I am made acceptable. Let's put it on the screen if we've got it. Here we go. I am made acceptable through Christ's work alone, therefore I obey. 
You see, there's obedience on both sides. It's just coming from a different motivation. And that difference in motivation is everything. It's critical. Let's go to statement number two. And by the way, you can use this almost like a diagnostic for your own heart. Uh, there's a lot in here that I, that I got tripped up with for me this week even uh, just to be vulnerable with you. I follow the rules in order to get things from God. Gospel, I follow the rules in order to get God to delight in him and be remade by him. Men and women, why do you serve? Why do you give? Why do you come to church? Why do you read the Bible? You know, why, why do you resist sin? Is it to get things from God? Like subtly, none of you would do that consciously, of course. But it's like subtly, it's like, oh man, I got to live right or God might bring something hard in my life. Or, or is it because you want God and you want to resemble him? Let's keep going. When I'm criticized, okay, now, now we're getting there, right? Uh-oh. I become overly sensitive or defensive because my identity is based on my performance. Oh my goodness. Guys, I am sensitive to criticism. Can I just own that with you? It's just true of me. And I know I'm not alone, but as I studied this this week, here's what I realized. Why am I sensitive to criticism? I think it's because my identity is in my performance. I don't want to see people only see me four inches above the ground on that rope. I'm your pastor, one of them anyway. I've got to climb the rope. I've got to be impressive, right? I am sensitive to criticism. Let me tell you how the gospel will release you from defensiveness or sensitivity to criticism. When I'm criticized, I struggle, but I can keep perspective because my identity is not based on my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ huge sixth sense shift that's happening between those two. And then one more we got to get to. We'll leave all these on the screen for a few minutes. My prayer life consists largely of petition. It only heats up when I'm in a time of need. Uh-oh, now we're meddling. My main purpose in prayer is to control the environment. Here's what we mean. It's like I'm praying to God to change things in my life to go better so I'll be more comfortable or more blessed. That's a works-based, religion-based approach to spirituality. Let's talk about a gospel-centered approach. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Do you see yourself? Do you see yourself climbing the rope? Now, most of us in this room, we're too smart theologically. We know that our salvation, i.e. our assurance of salvation in heaven for eternity, is through the cross alone. Yet, are we not, some of us, many of us, all of us even, still trying to earn God's approval? It's like, I'm saved, but I need to do a little better for God to like me. You see, may it not be. May it not me. May, may we become a fellowship with a gospel orientation. May we do good works. May we glorify our God in heaven, but may we do it from a place of gratitude. May we do it from a place of a shifted identity. May we do it from a place of a gospel, a grace orientation, not a works-based orientation. I know some of you in the room, you got all kinds of baggage from the churches you grow up in. Man, it's like, I, I gotta trust Christ. I gotta be baptized. I gotta do all these other things, whatever it is. Listen, you shift your trust in Christ, your identity shifts, and then you start to obey God from that place of identity. And when you're not obeying him well, you are not any less loved. You see? Now, you, you may not have the fullness of life that Christ would desire for you. 
as a parent, think about this. When your kids are making poor decisions, you don't love them any less, but you're like, you're not experiencing life. I desire life for you. But we do not obey to earn God's smile. Now here's what happens when you start getting caught up in this. I want to talk to the men specifically in the room, okay? It's true for all of us, but I want to talk to the men specifically in the room. Men, many of you have a lot of shame spiritually because you know you're not a good spiritual rope climber, right? Some of you are like, you, you know, man, it's true. Actually, my wife, it's the women in my family that are more spiritual than me. You feel shame in that. All right, let me talk to another group of people, men and women. Some of you actually are really good ladder climbers, like, you blow me away, man. You're doing precept Bible study and you're doing all this stuff and you're waking up at 6 a.m. You have an hour of prayer. You've been serving here for 20 years. You're a really good ladder climber. You're somewhere up there. What that can result in is pride over time. So here's what this rope does in us, guys. We alternate between shame and pride depending on how well we climb the rope. Shame and pride, shame and pride. It's a vicious cycle. The gospel's not in any of that. The gospel's not in any of that. Here's what I want to say to you. When you actually understand this, when you get fundamentally the difference between gospel and religion, it allows you to start to live from a new place. You have that, oh my word, Bruce Willis, I almost said it. <laughs> oh my word, you know, sixth sense, oh my word, it's not about me. I can rest. I can rest. Jesus came so that you can rest. Now, here's how I'm going to close this out. Jesus came to rescue us and give us rest from our work, rest from our need to earn God's approval, rest from our rope climbing. I want to invite you to stand together if you would. All right. I want you just to look right up here. All right. If you haven't heard anything else I said, you know, maybe you drifted off a little bit, but, but now you're standing, so the blood's, you know, flowing back again. You're awake, you're awake. If you haven't heard anything else I said, this is what I want you to hear, all right? I want you to hear this, you know, I'm gonna say this as clear as I can. Jesus did not come to create another religion. He came to end religion. Jesus did not come to give us something else to hold on to while we climb the rope of religion. Jesus came to tear down the rope of religion. And now we sing. We sing.